Hello and welcome to Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and I'd like to begin by acknowledging that I'm coming to you from the unceded Awabagal lands and to pay my respects to elders past and present. My guest today is Jessica Au. Jessica's first novel, Cargo, was published by Picador in 2011 and was highly commended in the Kathleen Mitchell Award for a writer under 30. She's a former deputy editor of Mianjin and is currently an associate editor at Eon, which I love, by the way, but we'll come back to that. <laughs> Her new book, Cold Enough for Snow, won the inaugural novel prize and was published by Giramondo. New Directions and Fitzcarraldo editions in February 2022, which we're still in, and translated into 15 languages. Jessica, welcome and congratulations on the book. Thank you, Maggie. It's so nice to be here. So can I get you to just open the show by reading a little from the book? Sure. Um, so I'm just going to read um, a passage from about midway through the book. Um, and this is when the mother and the narrator have just left Tokyo. The one place I wanted to get to that day was a church, reportedly a very beautiful building designed by a famous architect in a suburb near Osaka. I said to my mother that even though I knew she did not believe in that religion, visiting was supposed to be a profound experience and I hoped it would be worth the time. Earlier on the train, while lost in thoughts of my uncle and Hong Kong, I had looked over to see my mother's head tilted against the headrest near the window, her eyes fully closed. We left our bags in the lockers at the station and switched to the local lines. On the way, we stopped at a small noodle restaurant for lunch. There was a short queue outside, but they served everyone quickly and efficiently with the capability and speed of a place that had been around for many years making only the one thing. The noodles came in a large bowl, white on the inside, but decorated with a complicated, dense pattern of dull watermelon pinks and greens and yellows on the outside. It reminded me of the bowls I had often seen in restaurants during my childhood. This same pattern must once have existed on elaborate plates and tableware during a certain period in history. And, much like the famous Qinghua porcelain, it would have been admired and prized, such that when trade first opened up between Asia and the West, it was at first bought and then replicated in many different countries by many different hands and existed now in this version, made in a factory and used all over the world, numbering in the hundreds of thousands. I had some trouble at first finding the church, but eventually we came across it, a low box-like building in a quiet neighborhood and entered. Inside, the walls were made of raw concrete, which absorbed most of the light, making the interior dim and gray. The floor was not flat, but sloped ever so slightly downwards, as if pulling everything towards a simple Southern altar. On the wall behind the altar, two great cuts had been made, one from floor to ceiling and the other horizontally, so that they resembled a giant cross. As we sat, all our attention was focused on this large shape and the brilliant white light that streamed through the gaps in contrast to the subdued atmosphere of the room. The effect was riveting, 
not unlike staring out at the daylight through the opening of the cave. And perhaps I said to my mother, this too was what it had felt like to be in the earliest churches when nature itself was still a force in the world, visceral and holy. I said also that the architect had originally intended the cross to be unsealed so that air and weather would have gusted through the openings like the will of God itself. It was a gray, cold day and we were the only two people in the room. I asked my mother what she believed about the soul and she thought for a moment. Then looking not at me, but at the hard white light before us, she said that she believed we were all essentially nothing, just a series of sensations and desires, none of it lasting. When she was growing up, she said, she had never really thought of herself in isolation, but rather as inextricably linked to others. Nowadays, she said, people were hungry to know everything, thinking that they could understand it all, as if enlightenment was just around the corner. But she said, in fact, there was no control and understanding would not lessen any pain. The best we could do in this life was to pass through it, like smoke through the branches, suffering until we either reached a state of nothingness or else suffered elsewhere. She spoke about other tenets of goodness and giving, the accumulation of kindness like a trove of wealth. She was looking at me then, and I knew that she wanted me to be with her on this, to follow her. But to my shame, I found that I could not, and worse, that I could not even pretend. Instead, I looked at my watch and said that visiting hours were almost over and that we should probably go. I'm so glad you chose that passage. Um, maybe I'd say this about any passage you read <laughs> that I sat and listened, but um, I really feel like, um, maybe this is the nature of the book, but I feel like almost every theme is encompassed in what you've just read. So, so many different things happening all at once. Um, it, it's very quiet, not much happens, but yet every every key theme through the book seems to flow through that. So we've got these multiple histories, for example which is one of the themes, you know, these, these multiple, um, the, the old church versus the, you know, where they are sitting at that moment and, and the history and what it was meant to be, um, you know, the, the mother's philosophy versus the daughter's youth versus age, um, you know, the, the visuals, light versus dark. There's so many things happening in that passage. Yeah, I think, I think that was, probably why I chose it. I felt like it encompassed a lot of the things that were suggested in the book. Um, and, you know, I think as I sort of wrote, I definitely found that once you have this sort of container in the form, right, it's it's very easy to kind of make everything talk to each other and think about the layers um, and sort of constantly feedback. And I think that was that was certainly one place where I tried to do a lot of that. Mm. Did, is, is that um, did you do that? Like, did you begin with one kind of over overarching um, piece of writing like that and then find that there were enough threads within that to to pick them out into a full story um not really um i mean i think that the actual sort of uh beginning of the book was uh, a bit sort of accidental and haphazard i'd sort of been 
um, trying to write for a really long time um, and basically nothing was quite working, but I had this one short story that I'd written um, pretty much 10 years ago um, and it was the only piece of writing that I thought out of everything that I've written was, was kind of alive. Um, and so basically I thought, okay, I, I'll go back to the story and maybe I'll break it down and see, you know, see what it can be. Um, so that was the story about a mother and daughter taking a trip through Tokyo, but without any of the sort of digressions. Um, so that was sort of, it sort of became the spine or the center. Um, and then strangely enough, I think, you know, while I was writing a lot of the other things that I had been working on, which were also shorter form pieces, ended up making the digressions. Um, and, you know, they were things I think that I'd been um, clearly thinking about for a long time, but somehow the form and isolation didn't work. But once I had this sort of um, consciousness or character of the daughter and the kind of tension between her and the mother, um, I guess there had a dimensionality to it. The other things fit better into that consciousness than into a sort of a different character that didn't necessarily have that sort of migrant background um, and so then it sort of they just yeah became the digressions in between um, and then it was sort of quite easy I think to sort of refer back to another one and they sort of ended up talking to each other in those sorts of ways. Yeah just so um, so rich with with all of that you know unspoken um, all of the unspoken that happens throughout the book and I love what you said in your liminal interview which came out I think it came out um, a couple of days ago about writing into the gaps and you know seeing our inability to articulate these things as a source of richness rather than lack so um, I, you know I think you said time and history move very quickly and in some respects I see the protagonist as addressing this speed um, which almost seems to be past in some ways. We'll come back to that. But addressing this, this speed by slowing down so that mindfulness and detail become one way to engage with those gaps, to just stop and say, okay, well, I can't, I can't stop the progression of time, but I can look at this thing in front of me, or I can look at this piece of art, or I can look at my mother's face, or you know, I can, I can go to a, a place that is resonant and just notice every particular detail about the light. Yeah, I mean, I think certainly like the sort of the idea of the impact of sort of time and history on the individual is something that I think I was quite interested in, because I think that in some ways, you know, we sort of do feel a lot of these impacts in daily life, but you don't go through life thinking about, you know, the impact of migration or colonial thinking, um, you know, or deep history and deep time on you, but yet it's quite felt, it can be quite embodied. And I, I guess I wanted to tease out that feeling of half knowing something had happened to put you in this place, but not exactly um, knowing why, I guess. Yes, and that, you know, that feels very true to life that, you know, we can be in any situation and yet feel um, all of these things that are happening, you know, the histories of the land that we're on, as well as you know, all that we've lost and all that, you know, we felt um, that adds up to the moment that is now. So it's, it's quite a trick to, to get all, to get at all of that. But I can see that that's, you know, that really is one of the things that the book does so beautifully um, that you've come at slant, if you like. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's, I mean, the noticing as well, I think, you know, um, you know, it's strange, I sort of think that like, the idea of practicing and like noticing, 
Um, it's something that the narrator does a lot, but it's it's sort of, I guess, that she's this character that, you know, wants to wants to sort of live almost on a kind of higher plane. You know, she's she's a bit of a romantic. And I think the noticing aspect is sort of related to, you know, maybe what's fulfilling in life and what's not. I think that sort of, you know, modern society and and like capitalism often teach us to notice other things. Um, but those things, you know, ultimately end up being a bit empty. We sort of move on from craving one thing to craving another thing, to buying another thing, to wanting to achieve another thing. Um, and I think the narrator kind of senses that in some way um, and what she sees as being worthy, I guess, of noticing, are, you know, the small moments, um, small moments of beauty in life, um, you know, art, texture, light, um, that sort of thing. Um, but at the same time, you know, the tragedy of those moments is that they're fleeting, right? They're just a second and then you forget the feeling, you forget them, um, they don't last and that, I guess, is what gives beauty that more tragic element. Um, but I think she's also aware that, it, you know, she has to be quite vigilant to notice these things. It's something which the world is constantly sort of pushing you not to notice um, and I guess she's she's got that kind of searching, seeking quality about her um, but that, that also is something that can result in, you know, a bit of tension between her and her mother. Yes. And also, you know, they're both quite valid. It seems to me they're both quite valid philosophies that, that pull in opposite directions. So, you know, that, that line that you read about, you know, I think people just, uh, you know, they worry too much about, about the meaning of all things or, you know, the, the continual line, I think, that the narrator also struggles with, with, you know, I had one vague ex exhausted thought that perhaps it was all right not to understand all things, but to just see and hold them. That, um, you know, that is a tension and maybe that's the mother's lesson, um, but that's the, the, the kind of lovely tension between them and, and between her and her, her partner as well, who, you know, can just run up the hills without thinking about, you know, what is what are the many layers of the soil beneath my feet or, you know, what is the light doing? Yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, for me, it's kind of a, a live question. I think those two parts are probably two parts of my own thinking, you know, like, uh, you know, she, the narrator is always questing to kind of know something, to kind of have a kind of revelatory feeling, right? Like she, you know, I guess I feel that way sometimes when we, you know, we read philosophy, we read psychology or literature or art, you, you have this moment where you think, oh God, yes, that's, that's it. That's the feeling. Um, and it, it feels like enlightenment, right? It feels quite profound. Um, but at the same time, it's strangely hard to hold on to any of those feelings. Um, and, you know, I think that even though we might understand something, I don't know if that necessarily puts us into a higher plane or, or gives us peace with it. You know, it's, it's, it is a duality that I think is quite common, I think, in life. Um, and I guess the mother's view is that, you know, it doesn't really change anything, you know, suffering is a part of life. But I mean, my personal view is I think that, you know, with writing or with art, like it is possible to sort of hold something and that holding itself can be interesting. It's possible to transmute something. Um, and even though if it might be brief or you might forget it again, um, I do think that's a kind of powerful experience. But at the same time, yeah, I think both both those thoughts sort of run through the book and I, I don't think it's a reconciled question. Yeah, and, and it's it's lovely that it's not reconciled. I mean, I think that's part of the beauty of the book is that, you know, we can allow those two differences to coexist um, as the mother and daughter coexist on this trip. And, 
and they don't have to reckon you know they she doesn't have to accept her mother and her mother doesn't have to accept her and maybe one is youth and the other is age and maybe not um but it's not a, really a philosophical book either which is and you know there is a, a a lovely sort of concrete aspect to the relationship between the mother and daughter again it felt very real and and also kind of sad to me um you know there is a I guess a sense of loss that the book is infused with. I think Giramondo used the word elegy, and I, I may have used the word elegy as well because it does feel to me, and as somebody who's lost my mother, it does feel to me like there is a, a very strong sense of the daughter almost discovering her relationship with her mother in absentia, as if the mother were already gone. You know, and and there are little details that hint at that. I, I think the mother's here in the book and, and very present, but there are details that if the mother's not already gone that uh, and, and it's not being looked at from a, a different point of view than the time frame in which it's set, um, you know, look, looking back on it, for example, or looking back on that trip. But there is a sense that the mother's, mother's frail and we know what's coming, uh, even though that may be outside the frame of the book. Yeah, um, I mean, I think I sort of, you know, I like the idea of almost like three different levels on which the book could be read, like one was the literal journey on the page that they were just there in space and time. The other was, was that, you know, it could be being recounted from a place of memory. Um, and then the third was maybe that, you know, it was coming from a place of rewriting or almost, you know, wishful sort of thinking. Um, and I think that kind of, yeah, that feeling of elegy or ghostliness, um, you know, that wasn't, necessarily intentional but I think as I was writing I felt like it did have this regretful quality and I, I kind of had to work out you know why that was in the book um, and then when it sort of came towards the last sort of third I, I quite like the idea of almost like a third act of like you know destabilizing things a little bit more and that's when that idea of you know first there's the uncle story which kind of calls into question memory and trust and then there's sort of a scene um at an inn where the, the mother is kind of referred to as a, as a kind of ghostly figure. Um, and I guess I did really like the idea of this kind of third layer of, of a kind of ghost story in a way. Um, but I didn't, I, I guess I feel like, you know, there's no conclusion. It, it could be read on all of those three levels at once. Um, and, you know, yeah, I think there is that sense of, like you put it quite well, that even if the mother isn't necessarily gone yet, there's this anticipation of the loss and the mourning of the loss and that relating to maybe things that the daughter wish she could have said or, you know, wanted to articulate better on a trip that they might have had um, with the mother. And, you know, there's that sort of idea of Pintamento later in the book sort of rewriting things um, and, you know, the fact of, I guess, narrative and a novel being something that you can you can write to your own version of and you can fill in little gaps with a bit of you know wishful thinking I suppose or or you can you can make things as you thought you'd said them rather than maybe as they'd happened yes and playing with that whole notion of memory and and its reliability right you, you mentioned the uncle story and the sister and you know what what it is that they have actually happened almost doesn't matter because we are recreating each moment in in that sense. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, memory is such a strange one, isn't it? Because I think it's sort of, you know, we do say it's unreliable um, and it is in a way, but 
at the same time, it's something which feels so certain at the same time as being unreliable. You know, when we remember something, even if it's from the deep past, we feel absolutely sure that that's how it happened. And then you get these conflicting family stories about, oh, you know, actually, no, this is how I remember it, or this is, everyone's got their own version, exactly. And, you know, I think that sort of, you know, that narrative urge, we sort of, we do it all the time. We sort of, if something happens to us, that's sort of, dramatic or traumatic or even funny and it's a story we tell we'll, we'll tell it to various people you know socially or family and as we tell it we'll tell it and we'll learn to pick out you know the details and maybe skew you know what we said just a little bit to kind of fit the story a little bit better and I think it was just more of an awareness that you know everyone has these versions we all have these versions of life and it's not that they're not true to us in in some way they are but they're they're really a narrative act you know Mm. and yet you know i think that one thing that seems very concrete are the emotions in those moments so the tenderness for example between the mother and the daughter is much more constant it seems a force through the book than for example um you know, the fact of whether they were, they were here or there, or this happened or that happened, you know, did the mother disappear or, you know, and come back? Was she a ghost? Was she not a ghost? That tenderness seems to me to be, um, maybe love, you know, to be corny about it, but, you know, maybe that is a force that is a constant. Yeah, I I think I, I sort of, I mean, I think the daughter, um, she can be quite didactic and a bit forceful, you know, that's a lot of the tension that runs throughout the book, you know, she sort of, pushes her mother to do things um, that she knows her mother probably is too tired to do or doesn't necessarily want to do. So she she definitely has that element, um, Very you know. Doesn't she? She's, you know, she does these things and says, you know, and worse, <laughs> I didn't, you know, I didn't even, I was unable to pretend, but she's she's leaning into that, you know, that, that the fact that she didn't, she's very aware of it. She knows it, yeah, I think, I think she does know it and she, she knows it she's doing it, but she can't help but do it at the same time. But I guess she's also aware of her own flaws and the variability in her own telling and her own wants. Um, But I think I did, you know, really want to counter that at the same time by having a certain tenderness run through the book. And I I wasn't quite sure actually if I ever really pulled the balance off, Um, but it was important to me that there was also this sort of feeling of love, you know, the love between, you know, a mother and a daughter and that kind of, you know, that real intimacy of really being able to almost read their body language and, and read their thoughts. Um, but also I think there's, you know, uh, I guess the cultural element that comes in that too, because in Asian cultures, it's sort of, um, you know, there's a certain kind of feeling of care, a duty of care or of obligation um, towards your loved ones. And that that is a, kind of can manifest itself in very small ways, you know, just like you know, do they have enough food to eat? Are they warm enough? Do they have shelter? But there's kind of that almost anticipate, anticipatory quality um, of, of love that I also wanted to, to weave in. Mm. Yes. Um, so one thing that struck me uh, through the book was how much of the art, um, you've talked about the ekphrastic quality of the book and, and, you know, a lot of the observations come from the narrator uh, viewing art and and thinking about what does that mean you know what does this mean in this context um but i noticed that a lot of the art in the book is western not all of it is but um some of it is certainly there's plenty of french art um so 
there's like a, a little bit of a displacement I, I feel between the viewer and the art they're viewing that reminds me uh, reminds um, the reader, I think, of the mother's double migration and the daughter's sense of being one step removed from the mother tongue, like the mother's culture. Um, and, and I feel this as a, a tension that encompasses the art in a way, which is very interesting. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I never actually thought about that. I think um, it may have been just that, you know, when I, some of it was based on artworks that I saw when I went to Japan. And at that point, um, I think they, they do actually tend to have a lot of impressionist exhibitions um, in Japan. I think that's almost a certain kind of fascination with that form of art, probably because it is a bit more abstract, which is slightly similar to some Asian art. Um, but also maybe because I didn't feel like I knew enough about Asian art at the time to really write that deeply into it, I suppose. Um, so there are a couple of things, you know, like the screen printing and the ceramics and things like that. But um, I think that was probably just more, a, you know, in a way, a kind of, you know, practical um, concern that happened that I just happened to be seeing a lot of Western art. Um, but, you know, that kind of expresses sort of idea. I, I, I did really like that. I like the idea of, um, you know, a work of writing describing another work of art and then in describing that work of art, the narrator would sort of reveal, you know, something about herself. Um, and, you know, one of the things I sort of think of was, you know, there's a, a passage where um, she and her mother go to a gallery and they view a work of art, which is inspired by James Turrell. Um, and he deals a lot with kind of light and shadow and space um, and the sort of sitting there in this you know, dark room and they're watching this light, a bit like a very slow sort of sunrise come up. Um, but as the narrator describes it, she sort of describes that, you know, eventually as they get up and they walk closer to the source of the light, she notices that she misread the, the shape, the box that the light is coming out of. And, you know, again, that's sort of talking to the fact that she she's slightly cognizant of her own variability, that she doesn't notice things. It is still, you know, her sort of version of things. Um, and yeah, I mean, I suppose, again, with that idea of the crisis, I, I really just like the idea of, um, you know, a third thing, um, like the fact that sometimes we need to see something obliquely um, or metaphorically to really understand it. Um, and in some way, you know, Japan here is like the third country, the third thing. It's the, the sort of funnel through which the narrator can sort of view her past and her family and her relationship um, with her mother in a way because it's a bit, it's a degree once removed, you know, and there's references to like the camera obscura and things like that throughout it. So I think, um, yeah, I, I, I guess I sort of liked holding that, that sort of um, form of thinking throughout the novel. And that thing once removed is, it, it kind of echoes through the book in, in all sorts of different ways. So we have the pottery, for example, which, you know, we begin with this precious pottery, but then, you know, it becomes a factory pottery that you see everywhere from being something that was rare and precious. And we, we get that sense of those reverberations that happen um, throughout the book, and they, they all mirror each other in, in a way that's quite, you know, really, um, it's subtle, but it, it also adds up. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, with the pottery that sort of, yeah, ties back into exactly what we were saying, that it's sort of, you can you know, the, I guess, the, I think the thing you're referring to is the blue and white bowls, yes. um, you know, or the, what I read out in that passage, the bowls with the watermelon, you know, colours and the pinks and greens. And, yes, you know, 
that's yeah and it's sort of you know it is really just that feeling of um you know encountering something in the world and sensing that there is this deeper history behind it and sensing that there's an impact on you but not quite really understanding why at the time um and then maybe later on especially you know if you're someone like the narrator and you sort of have this university background going back and reading it and the strange thing of that retrospectively being clarified for you you know that this sort of blue and white pottery it's you know um it's quite common it's it's you know something that I grew up with in in my childhood home and there were just dozens and dozens of these bowls um but actually the deep history of that being that that blue and white pottery was something that was um quite precious um you know in ancient China and it was something that was really coveted by the European market um and you know was something that was yeah venerated and sort of this work of art and you can see now there are still these amazing pieces say in the British Museum or something um but then of course what happens time mass production capitalism you know as that sort of travels through history you end up going from this thing which is yeah sort of a special rare work um to something which is related to it but ends up in your house as this sort of mass produced bowl but also i guess the strangeness of you know she has the bowl in her house but then she also goes and um house sits for a, a lecture of hers and she sees the bowl the same bowl in um this lecturer's house and i guess the strangeness i guess of something that to you is part of your culture it is quite um every day but strangely what happens when you see that and it sort of becomes a a fashion statement or a trendy object or a kind of cultural comment you know that the lecturer has chosen to to take and put in her house for some other reason it's just that what is that disconnect i guess mm. yes I, and you know even the idea of discovering the mother and i know this is quite a different thing to the pottery but the idea that you know where we kind of i mean all of us do we we sort of take our mothers for granted they're always there right and they they're very close to us and and it's only with kind of time and reflection that you begin and this happens in the book that she begins to think i never really thought about how hard it must have been for my mother to you know to migrate um to a strange western country and have people not quite understand what she was saying even though it was the same you know she was speaking perfectly and and just all this sense of what what did it, what was it like to be this woman as opposed to you know my mother this yeah it's like that, around us and near us yeah like i mean it's it's just that sense of the transition i think between seeing your parent as a parent and then trying to you know understand them as a person um and i think you know i think that probably happens to a lot of us um but maybe especially here that you know the mother i think the daughter feels that the mother i suppose has occupied more of a kind of maybe slightly confusion space where she's she's just you know the mother in the family dynamic and in some way that tension comes because the daughter wants to know her as a person she wants her in a way to maybe confess a lot of things to her and tell her maybe more personal things and she wants her to stop kind of effacing herself in a way to to you know say what she wants um to say what she desires where she wants to go and but the mother kind of still you know withholds that from her and maybe as a part of that she spends a lot of time sort of you know projecting and and trying to see um 
you know, what it was like for her mother. Um, but also, yeah, that it is, you know, as a child, I think you, you, you know, you're concerned with your own well-being. It can be quite a selfish thing. You don't really think about um, until you're an adult yourself how difficult it would have been um, for all parents, really. Yes, yeah, and and this hints and and I, again, I love I love how you've done this in the book. I, I love the way you've given us so much suggestion without spelling it out. But you know, there's hints that the mother has quite the story. You know that there was war, and we know the the history. So we know that she that her migration would not have necessarily come from you know an easy place. It wouldn't have been a simple migration. It would have been quite quite difficult. Um, so it, it, it's quite beautiful to get that sense. Um, without it, it makes the book feel very rich um, without actually spelling it all out so um, really really beautiful yeah I mean I think um I mean another thought I'm just having on that is also that it I suppose when it comes to migration um there can be a kind of erasure I suppose the mother also withholds the story because in a way there's probably been a lot of pressure for her not to tell her story and um, I, I guess I feel that, I mean, that's quite common in my family, say my mother knows very little about her own father and why he immigrated. He immigrated from China to Malaysia. And it's weird, I've only just found out recently that that was probably because of the famine. Um, but she knew so little um, of that story. And as, as a result, I know so little of that story. Um, and I think that maybe, you know, with migration, it's it's a mix between the pressures of assimilation, especially when you move to a Western culture, um, but also just movement and the fact that it's difficult to sustain a narrative and a culture when you have less people around with which to do that, you know, and your language is different, say. Um, and I don't know if it necessarily happens um, intentionally, uh, but all those mix of those things can lead to a kind of erasure, um, you know, and I think that's something else that you know, she talks about there's a lot of gaps and fragments and she doesn't really know what, you know, what's happened with her family um, in the past. And I think also that's probably why she she wants to know her mother more, but her mother also maybe out of habit or just not thinking of these things for so long doesn't necessarily give it to her. Um, and, you know, I suppose that idea of, oh, sorry. There's, there's trauma in that as well and that that trauma is being withheld so as not to pass it on, I think, too. Yeah, I think so as well. I mean, I think that there is, um, you know, and again, I don't want to generalize this. This is really specific to different families, but, um, you know, there's a sense of, uh, I guess, in, in my family as well, not necessarily burdening someone with all of your sadness or all of your trauma. Sometimes you, you do withhold things, you know, um, and I think that's maybe another aspect as well. Yeah, wonderful. So we're nearly out of time. Um, and I know that you're still very much in, in full on promotion mode. Um, the book really has only just come out. Um, but I, only, I know also it sometimes takes a while for a book to come out from the point at, at which it's accepted for publication. So um, do you have, are you working on a new project? Is there something um, that you'd like to work on or something that, that you're playing around with? Um, not really at the moment. It's It's been pretty much a really sort of busy time. So I haven't actually had much time to read, let alone write. Um, but I, I probably, it's probably more correct to say that I'm thinking my way towards something else. Um, but really, I'd probably like to spend, a, you know, a lot of time just researching and sort of, you know, grasping for concepts and language. Um, I do think that 
you know, time, timing is kind of important when it comes to, to writing in the sense that, I, you know, with this book, I felt I had to hold things in my head for quite a long time before I was ready to write about them. And it really only worked when I thought about them for so long. Um, I was ready to kind of like discover something you know, on the page, it was almost like, you know, sort of catching a wave. You, you can't write too early because it might be too raw. You can't write too late because then the sense of energy or, yeah, um, aliveness would kind of be lost. So I think I'm just sort of aware of that as well with any next work. Like it, you know, it might take me another 10 years. It might take me five. But, um, you know, um, I, I'll think my way towards something and, and see what comes maybe. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Well, um, so I've been talking with Jessica Au about her new book, Cold Enough for Snow, um, an absolutely wonderful book. Um, get hold of it if you can. And uh, Jessica, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you, Maggie. It was such a pleasure.